0: this hour, we're going to talk about the key trends that will affect us as South Africans this year, 2023, because one of the lessons from 2022 was that social contracts are deteriorating at a very rapid rate. And we could attest to this when it came to the impact it had on our daily lives. In 2022, the decline in service delivery came under the spotlight in many configurations in the form of shadow governance and privately funded initiatives in the disconnection of basic services due to municipal debts or illegal connections and the division of basic uh, services that uh, uh, Greenling And our next guest is outlining what to look out for in 2023 as she challenges us as her readers because she wrote a piece for the Daily Maverick to consider whether we are getting a fair deal when it comes to the relationship between service delivery and our rights. We're joined by Bronwyn Williams, and analyst at flux trends bronwyn good morning happy new year what do you guys do at flux trends
1: good morning thanks so much for inviting us so the way we like to describe ourselves at flux trends is basically we're a contemporary equivalent of a watchman that used to stand on the watchtowers on medieval sort of castles we kind of scan the horizon looking for emerging trends that could turn into opportunities or threats for the people who engage our
0: services mm. and you determine something as trendy when what happens
1: Well, when it comes to trends, we want something that has more than one incident, so it's not an isolated event, and it also has to have some sort of direction. It has to be increasing or decreasing. So we're looking for patterns popping up in multiple places, but also over a particular duration of time.
0: And this is across the spectrum of society, every part of it.
1: Yes, exactly. We are definitely generalists. We're in a very fortunate position there, as sort of you know, professional court jesters that go around rattling cages of corporates and totally government leaders too. Um, but what we do is we do try and look at everything that's going on, and we try and know a little bit about everything so that we're able to connect dots and to find patterns as to the way the world is headed, what we're going to get more of, what we're going to get less of, as the base case, for sort the of most probable future going ahead always bearing in mind that that probable future can be challenged. And that's why I always like to tell people that listen to these sorts of conversations, don't start to hear what I say and see it as being a a sense of doom and gloom and inevitability. It's far from that. This is just the trajectory that we're on. It's the line that the trend is projecting, but it can absolutely be changed and can be changed quite dramatically by relatively small actions and impacts that individuals can take to actually nudge us off that trend line that we're on into a new trend line that's hopefully in a better direction. So if you are uncomfortable with any of the trends I covered today, bear in mind it's in your power to nudge that trend's direction in a better direction if you're not comfortable with it.
0: So let's go for it then. Let's start. Um, you know, I, I love the part where in your article you say, amazing as the advances in artificial intelligence are right now, I humbly suggest that the key global trends that will affect the day-to-day lives of South Africans over the next 12 months are a little more human. I'm listening.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think all too often people that are in our sort of world as keynote speakers and futurists and trained analysts, we tend to want to talk about new, shiny, emerging technologies because it's interesting, it's exciting, it's what everyone's talking about, but that can be a huge mistake. It can be very, very distracting. Cast your mind back two years ago, what was the big buzzword of the day? It was NFTs everywhere. Now, maybe you've bought a couple of NFTs, maybe you've lost money on NFTs, but they've clearly not Change the world as it is. And last year we were talking all about the metaverse and it's all very exciting there. And coming into this year, we're talking about GPT chat and all the rest of it and AI. Very exciting, very, very interesting, and will have big impacts on our society, perhaps far into the future. But right now, if you are in South Africa, We are in a society that has a lot of political uncertainty. We're clearly not having the best of times, economically speaking, either. Inflation is among us. We understand we're feeling quite poor and quite anxious. And the sorts of things that we are actually going to impact on our lives over the next sort of six months, six to 12 months, are going to be things that are much more human. Now, that's not only in the short term. It's also in the far, far long term. It's much more interesting to look at the way we relate to each other as human beings if you want to look at real trends rather than just at distractions. Because what's absolutely beautiful, if you are a trained analyst, is the luxury to look at the way the world has moved over the centuries. And it's quite fascinating to see how even in the, some of the earliest books ever written by humans, like the, the, the Odyssey, right, and the Iliad, hmm. how much humans stay the same and how the challenges of organizing society are often at the core of where we are headed next. And that's organizing at a micro and at a macro level. And I think that's why I wanted to frame the conversation around the trend that's probably most important this year is that conversation around social contracts. And social contracts, we generally tend to think of in terms of the social contract between the state and the citizen, that is the physical and physical freedoms that we give up in exchange for physical and physical, at least theoretically, protection and security from the state. And we know that's broken down, particularly here in South Africa. We pay more in taxes than many other comparable economies, but we get less in return. We don't have safety and security. We have to employ our own private security companies if we want to feel safe in a very physical sense, in a physical sense. Once again, we pay quite high tax rates uh, from a comparable country perspective, but we don't have as deep social security safety nets either. We don't have things like universal health care, our grants barely keep people alive, <laughs> never mind that a decent, dignified standard of living. It seems to be that we have to give up too much and not get enough in exchange. But what fascinates me as a trend analyst with the social contract conversation, which is something I'm very much focused on this year is that similar conversations are happening at different scales. Mm. The other social contracts we have that hold our society as we know together Mm -hmm. are also under great questions. One of the biggest conversations we're having right now with our corporate clients is the breakdown of the contract or the agreement between what an employer and employee relationship should Mm -hmm. be, right? Mm -hmm. We've heard about things like quiet quitting and the great resignation. Again, we're talking about this trade-off between security and freedom, freedom in terms of where we work and what hours we work and security in terms of a guaranteed paycheck at the end of the month. Mm, mm. And, uh, the, the most sort of relationships are not working the way they did before with the rise of things like remote work and the questionings coming on board with the young generation Z who just keeps asking, like, why do we want to do this? This is not a trade-off in terms yeah. of the hours and the years that I spend at work and what I get in return in terms of security. And even at a more micro level, we're also seeing renegotiation of social contracts in the home—the contract of who does what
0: yes. inside
1: the home yes. and who lives with whom, right—and how we share those resources. So I think it's a really interesting conversation. We mustn't get so trapped into the doom and gloom of the breakdown of the of state delivery. We know about that, right? That's sort of background noise. Yeah. But There's a bigger conversation to be had as to the trade-offs that we're having in our relationships with each other, those norms that have defined the last century are not necessarily norms that are going to define the next one. And there's a huge opportunity to rewrite those contracts so they can become more win-win rather than zero-sum gains because that's the overwhelming sense we see with people dissatisfied with the state, dissatisfied with their jobs, with their bosses, dissatisfied with how their relationships are working in the home. It feels like there are winners that keep winning big and losers that keep losing hard, and that we're not having win-win relationships in those
0: unwritten social contracts that define us, and we need to do better. Bronwyn, I want to go to a quick commercial break, and then we continue our conversation, but I also was fascinated uh, around, uh, you know, this thing that you call the new version of discrimination, which is, you know, uh, disguised as a seemingly legitimate virtue, but at the core of it is still, in many ways, about segregate segregating rich people from poor people. So, can we also talk about that when I come back on uh, on break? From break, we're in conversation with Bronwyn Williams, trend analyst at Flux Trends, as we talk what she deems the key trends that will affect our lives as South Africans in 2023. You're listening to SAFM. <laughs>
1: Tweet at SFM Radio and at KG Moekezi.
0: Welcome back. We've been in conversation with a trend analyst at Flux Trends. Her name is Bronwyn Williams because Bronwyn wrote a piece on the Daily Maverick on the key trends that will affect our lives in 2023. Welcome back, uh, Bronwyn. So let's talk this issue of these invisible borders, uh, you know, that are a new form of discrimination, according to you
1: yes this is quite an interesting one that we've been tracking for quite some time so obviously one of the big trends that was in place before COVID happened and we all got distracted by it once again probably the biggest trend that is driving society at the moment is questions around sustainability and of course everything to do with the climate crisis as it's now being termed now some of the responses to that coming from the political sector across the world are unfortunately seeming to have some sort of, shall we call them, unintended consequences or intended consequences, depending on how cynical you are. Mm. But in particular, we're talking about a topic that we spoke quite about, about last year, Dion Chang and myself, this concept of green lining. is a very, very interesting one. And again, it happens at scale. That's what I'm always looking for, for trends that are going to have a big impact. Are they happening at a macro scale and a micro scale? That means that there is a shift happening there. And at a macro scale, greenlining can kind of be determined as how certain whole regional blocks can potentially be really blocked from participating in the international economy if they are not meeting carbon scorecard targets. Very similar to the way we kind of have BBE here in South Africa. If you want to do business with any, any sort of entity connected with the state, you have to meet your criteria, right? You have to follow those standards. Now, when it comes to global trade standards, of course, those standards can be quite onerous and they can quite often put unfair costs onto raw producing nations, right? Nations that are contributing to global supply chain through raw materials quite often have higher carbon footprints than those who are consumers of those sorts of things. But anyway, we see these sorts of penalties coming in and also almost roadblocks to doing business with international communities if you're not meeting green standards. So we already saw this a couple of years ago with things like certain businesses that are attached to the petro-based economy or the coal-based economy being unable to get loans from banks, both internationally but now locally too. we are seeing some of that there. we see sustainability-linked loans, which kind of penalize non-green companies from participating in the economy once again. And, of course, these are all done for a good reasons. So I'm not taking a moral stance at all, mm. but rather saying that they are cuts. And there are unfortunately extreme costs, particularly for emerging markets that are quite reliant on primary resources as primary exports, for example, or are still functioning with coal based economies like mm-hmm, ours are, that mm-hmm. can be used through bureaucracy to kind of block those nations from doing business under favorable trade conditions with other trading blocks. So That's quite an abstract way of looking at things. But there's other examples that might seem a little bit closer to home. we can use more tangible examples to talk about the same concept of invisible borders popping up all the way through society. And then my favorite example to talk about is that of the rise of what I'm terming ha-ha cities. Mm-hmm. Now, in medieval times, once again, let's talk about the medieval times, quite a lot of people don't change too much. Rich landowners used to sometimes, instead of building walls around their properties, because that would block their view, would dig ditches so the peasants couldn't walk onto their property, but also they could still see the nice view all across the hills. So it's kind of an invisible border. And one of these invisible borders that we see now pushed again as progressive policy, but can actually be quite progressive in principle when it comes to social and economic mobility, even though it's progressive in terms of environmental consciousness, is this concept of what they term terming 15-minute walking cities. And this is where they're trying to get communities to stay kind of where they are. Mm. Again, this is great. Cut down on your carbon budget. but it also means that migrant workers or commuters or people that um, can't afford to live in premium areas actually can't get there as easily and it's cost-effective more. And there's many examples that have popped up throughout Europe of this about migrant workers that are now basically kind of being excluded from working in more wealthy parts of town because they it's so difficult to get in there. Uh-huh. Because if, if you live close, it's quite difficult to move there. And that's, again, perhaps an example that won't challenge your listeners too much like guess other examples too, including like town planning councils mm-hmm. who are engaging in what they call nimbyism, so not in my backyardism. yard yeah. using environmentalism as an excuse to keep poorer communities or communities of color, which is often the case, yes. from building in the areas. So they're saying they won't allow low-cost buildings in this particular geographic postal code because, you know, it can disturb the natural flora and fauna or because there's going to be a carbon footprint in building that building. But really, people need a place to live and yes. these things can be used in, as an excuse. So I hope people listening to this conversation take, take what I'm saying from where it's coming, not saying that it's not good to think about sustainability. It's, it's essential to think about sustainability. But it's also essential to 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 really consider that perhaps some of the things we're doing can be used as an excuse for people that might not have the same the same sort of ethical background as us that might be coming at this from or using these things as an excuse to actually limit inclusion in the economy too so as always is a balance to be found it's never a case of sort of and or, or it's always a case of and and trying to find a balance there i think these are interesting conversations to have and look out for that so these sort of invisible blockers that are virtue-coated that perhaps can be used for non-virtuous reasons too. But anyway, it is a scale. And if you're interested in more, again, you can read the article that we put out. We had a few more examples. Yeah.
0: And then the, the, the issue of, uh, you know, the broken social ca- contracts, because you say at every level, the social contracts that hold our society together are coming apart at the seams. Yes,
1: yeah, so I was going back to what I was saying earlier. So it's the case of a contract is a give and take, just mm. like any trade would be, right? So if, you, if you're dealing with a trade in a so-called free market that's actually free, a trade or a deal can actually be a good thing. If you have too many oranges and I have too many apples and we do a swap, we can both end up happier at the end of it with our new fruit salad as opposed to our sort of homogeneous crop that we had previously. And that's how trade works well. When it comes to social contracts, we're not trading in goods, so specifically, rather we're trading in obligations. We give up some rights and in return we take in order to get some benefit from that. or we We take on some responsibilities and in exchange we hope to get something back for that. But social contracts break down and people feel like they are giving more than they are getting or that some people are getting all the gains from what's going on and other people are getting all the losses. And this is why we have people criticizing things like saying capitalism must fall and all the rest of it, or even challenging the very ideas of democracy itself Mm. because it feels like these unwritten and written social contracts that we have are just perpetuating inequalities rather than actually making it win-win
0: for everyone that is involved. Yeah. And how much of a co- of factor of was COVID in, you know, you determining the, tree, the, the 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 trends that will affect us? Because in many ways, it came as a very big surprise to the globe and affected us even, um, you know, more greatly than it did the bigger economies. So when you were analyzing the trends, how much of a factor was COVID and how it has redefined our existence? Yes,
1: yeah, so COVID is a really interesting one, particularly in that it can be seen as a trend accelerant rather than as a trend trigger, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting way to look at it. What COVID did is it kind of put a spotlight onto all the inequalities and injustices in our society, in the home as well, who's doing the childcare, who's doing the work, all of those sorts of things too. But also at a a more global scale, it definitely made us understand who were essential workers, who were not essential workers, who were the lucky people whose incomes increased during remote working times, and who's everyone else who lost money during those times and how Mm. unfair all of those sorts of things were. And this also played out at a global scale, too, where we saw some countries doing so much better than other countries. Mm -hmm. I think one of my most interesting sort of stuff that we picked up there is what happened with the labor force in developing economies versus developed economies. Yeah. And we saw that in developed economies, workers end up working something like two hours less per week by by the end of COVID than they were at the beginning of COVID. And workers in developing economies like our own ended up working something like two hours more per week than they were doing pre COVID, right? So we saw all these sorts of all these all these Amplifying effects, amplified existing trends and existing differences in separating effects in society just magnified a lot.
0: Yeah. I love how you say, uh, you know, however, you know, as, as these trends play out, we can only rely on one thing, and that is South Africans will always continue to make a plan. Yes, on we're, very, plan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're very, very good at that. And that's both our strength and our weakness. Yeah. I've also written about this quite a bit in the past. It's a strength in that if service delivery breaks down, we're quite resilient. Even our poorest communities have alternatives to state education. If children aren't getting this quality of education parents are looking for, uh-huh. they'll make a community school. Same with safety and security. Neighbourhood watch groups pop up again across the socio-economic spectrum. To fill the gap, for services that we really have already paid for in terms yeah. of our taxes. We have a high batch rate here. Everyone pays taxes, even the poorest people in our communities. And we don't get our money's worth for that, right? So on the one hand, it's great if we make a plan, we carry on, we live quite well, even though we're not getting what we pay for in terms of the social contract there. Uh-huh. But the downside to that is that we are very com- we, quite complacent with our government, right? But we tolerate a lot of dysfunction. We tolerate a lot of that breakdown, a lot of that unfairness. And eventually that builds up, and the risks there, of course, are things that like clear up, like what happened with the insurrection a couple of years back, and those sorts of things. So, yeah. resilience can become a risk if it turns into complacency rather than proactivity. So, I think that's, the course, the lesson there. But I think about many of the trends that I covered in this article in terms of proactivity there but be around the rise of what we're sort of turning to be shadow governance. Uh This is where citizen groups are stepping in to fill gaps in service delivery and are doing things, sort of working around the system rather than working with the system that don't seem to be able to have much impact in in terms of the sort of limited effect that our vote has every four or five years, right? (laughs) We know we vote and we kind of have to see what we get and what happens then. But the rise of shadow governance, where community groups are filling those gaps, mm. is quite an interesting trend. And when we start to see with those communities using technologies, sometimes quite simple technologies, even down to things like WhatsApp groups or more complicated ones actually setting up whole apps that actually sort of deliver service, almost like the AA does for roadside support, but for other community services too. It's quite nice to see how neighbourhoods and how communities can come together and solve problems that would deemed to be basically insoluble by the elected officials. You, so again, there's always a balance to be found there.
0: You say we should expect less. <laughs> From from the government and more resourcefulness and and resentment, particularly interesting to me, resentment from the government both. and and we know how <laughs> how that manifests in South Africa.
1: Yes, it's both it's both the resourcefulness and the resentment that both there's both the opportunity and a the threat there. Mm. All of these trends, you know, there's seeds being planted and and which way the wind actually ends up blowing is not determined, but we can definitely understand that both those currents are growing at the moment uh we look for trends to see the government is going to turn itself away and keep literally the lights going a bit more this year unfortunately we're unable to find any clear indicators that things are going to be better in terms of service delivery the they were last year yes we have an election coming up next year so maybe there'll be a turning point then but for this yeah and, and, and as as you were understand that
0: As you were analysing, and and I know it's what you do, uh, you know, the work of analysing trends, but, you know, was there anything that surprised even you in your analysis? Yeah, I think the actual
1: experience Things to which those community groups are popping up underneath the radar and doing things asking for forgiveness or not asking for permission mm. was something that was really interesting to us. And I think what's also interesting is that it's not just a South African thing. That's also something that we try and look for. But it's not just things that are playing out in South Africa. How, it is, how is that playing out in other communities too? The rise of things like shadow governance is something that's been spoken about by think tanks all over Europe and all over the world at the moment, which is quite interesting. And I think there's sort of comments from politicians, I think even in the the UK, saying things like citizens shouldn't expect the government to provide energy for citizens going forward. That should be something that individuals provide for themselves are these little These little bellwethers, these little signals that point to a future where governments are not going to be delivering for societies in the sort of physical sense that they were previously. And as such, that's another indication of the social contract and the expectations we have in terms of what we give and what we get as a citizen versus the state are going to shift. And this doesn't necessarily have to be a disaster. Rather, it can be seen as an opportunity to to rewrite those contracts and to be very clear about what our expectations are. As the sort of trite saying goes, happiness is basically the difference between expectation and reality, right? If your expectations are are exceeded compared compared to what reality is, then you're happy. But if, if you're let down, then you're not. Hmm. So I think a large amount of we are having these conversations about how social contracts are written, whether they're in the home as to whether wife, husband, mom, dad, partner, spouse does what work and brings what in in terms of physical and physical support in the home, or whether it's at a state citizen level, what we bring as citizens or what we get from the state. Those things, those expectations need to shift. Yeah. I think that some of the expectations need to shift on our side as citizens too, but maybe we do need to expect that we have to participate in this project that is democracy in a more proactive way, more yes. than just marking our check on the ballot box, but if we want things to succeed, we have to accept and expect we will be participating more. this not, not necessarily a bad thing. It could actually be quite a positive shift. Absolutely. For us to be more reliant on communities and less reliant on elected officials are quite frankly, have very little accountability in the source of the system that we have around us today.
0: Ultimately, though, fascinating piece. And uh, thank you for making the time to come and explain it to us. And uh, have a fantastic year. So we'll see. We'll watch with you what plays out as 2023 goes on. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Bronwyn Williams is a trend analyst at uh, Flux Trends.